This podcast is brought to you by the film Ezra from Bleecker Street, directed by Tony Goldwyn with an incredible ensemble that includes Robert De Niro, Bobby Cannavale, and Whoopi Goldberg. Ezra is a funny and endearing story about Max, a divorced father struggling to co-parent his autistic son, Ezra. When faced with difficult decisions about the future, they embark on a cross-country road trip that has a transcendent impact on both their lives. Deadline calls Ezra a touching testament to the power of love. In theaters May 31st. Pampers Cruisers 360 is the must-have diaper to help keep your baby from taking it right off, which, if you've experienced this, can lead to complete chaos. With its 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your baby for a comfortable fit, your active baby can move freely. Think of it as baby yoga pants. Cruisers 360 offers a gap-free fit and has a blowout barrier at the back of the diaper to help stop any unwanted disasters. The best part? That stretchy waistband makes it so easy to change your wiggly baby, who is always on the move and can't be stopped. Just rip the sides to remove and roll it up with the disposal tape on the back. Voila! Pampers Cruisers are available in sizes 3 to 7 and now feature fun new prints. Pair with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, made from 100% plant-based cloth that grips the mess without fear of tearing. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hi, this is Laura Vanderkam. I'm a mother of four, an author, journalist, and speaker. And this is Sarah Hart Unger. I'm a mother of three, practicing physician, and blogger on the side. We are two working parents who love our careers and our families. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. Here we talk about how real women manage work, family, and time for fun. From figuring out childcare to mapping out long-term career goals, we want you to get the most out of life. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. This is Laura. This is episode 142. We'll be interviewing, or I'll be interviewing, Jen Hatmaker during this episode. Jen is the author of several books, most recently, Fierce, Free, and Full of Fire, which is a bit of a mouthful, but it's a fun read. She talks about some heady issues in there in terms of being your best self, sort of claiming your ambition of whatever size that is, getting over various barriers that are holding us back. But she does it in such a fun style. So I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to love reading that. And she's just a fascinating person, people who are familiar with her life. As I talk about in the interview, not many people who have had careers both as a pastor and as an HGTV television personality. So we go into all that. And uh, I hope you'll enjoy listening to that. Speaking of fun diversions, Sarah, what what have you been doing lately to (laughs) divert your attention during this quarantine fun Yeah, I feel like, well, I I was just listening to one of my other favorite podcasts. So podcasts have been a big theme for me because I've been taking walks outside. And I think like many others, I'm finding that lighter material is definitely hitting home right now for the most part. Like I actually did read a pretty 
heavy book recently. Oh my gosh, now I'm blanking on what I just read. Oh yeah, The Topeka School okay. by Ben Lerner. It took me a really long time to get into it, but then it did have that sort of immersive feel where you're like in this other world, even though it was a very dark and really gloomy world. And I enjoyed it, but I think my, well, you know what my next pick is. I have begun The Cortland Boys, which is actually perfectly light. I'm sure there are also darker themes that are going to be delved into, but the style is very, it's just readable. Like it's just one of those books. Like I wanted to read it between my conference calls and was like, oh damn, I have to start my call. So hey, by the way, that's Laura's book. So <laughs> yeah. if anybody wants to check Why that out about it? <laughs> and she did not tell me to um, place this, but that is actually what I'm reading and I'm really enjoying it. And we are watching some TV. So we just finished This Is Us, which um, I think the season ended a few weeks ago, but we're like totally behind. You know, my husband's work schedule has been a lot lighter than it normally is. So it's kind of funny. We've been enjoying just having a little bit more bandwidth to to like watch shows at night and and talk. And, and that's been nice. Yeah. Have you watched anything or read anything juicy? Not really. I mean, I read a couple books <laughs> some about uh, big sort of nonfiction themes. So I read uh, Elizabeth Colbert's The Sixth Extinction, which is about extinctions through history. <laughs> um, so not really about viruses, but uh, related sort of natural disasters. I read Homo Deus that uh, Yuval Harari, I forget his name exactly, but you know he wrote the book Sapiens. Uh, so this oh, is yeah. a follow-up about what future humanity will be like. Uh, what else have I Those been Those are reading? not light. No. <laughs> About a month ago now, I read uh, Michelle Obama's memoir, Becoming. And, I, you know, I was I was like the parts of memoirs where people talk about their childhoods and young adulthoods. Like, you know, kind of know her story after she became famous. So it's like that part, whatever. But the, it's more fun reading about her growing up in Chicago and uh, being a young person there. So I enjoyed that. Does that have an audiobook that she narrates? Because I feel like that would be cool. Oh, that might be. I, I don't know. I read it. I don't, I haven't been doing all that well with audiobooks. I, I have, I'm way behind on all my podcasts just because I am not doing any of the things that I would have been doing that I matched with podcasts. So probably I should listen to more of them, but I just, it's not part of what I'm doing anymore. Uh, I'm running outside instead of on the treadmill. Uh, so I'm not listening to them on the treadmill. I'm not driving anywhere. So there's, there's that time is gone. And you don't, you don't like to do podcasts when you run outside? No, no, I, I want to be able to hear stuff. I don't know, people, cars, whatever. I, I just don't. You could always do the, the one headphone. The one trick. headphone. Yeah, we'll have to work on that. Because <laughs> I, I definitely, um, I'm still alive and <laughs> pretty You're much all of my outdoor running has always been. All of my outdoor running has always been with something in my ear. So even, <laughs> even going way back before it was like cool to do it. I mean, that's why like I listened to another mother runner when they were, you know, mm. the very, one of the few podcasts around. And I was like, wow, this pair, pairs really well with like running 18 miles or whatever I was doing back then. Yeah, well, maybe I'd feel better about running 18 miles miles if I was listening to podcasts. So maybe I have to get on that. Right, my husband and not. my boys have been watching uh, The Crown. Ooh, that's like kind of educational. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll, uh, yeah, maybe they need to listen to uh, Queen Elizabeth's speech or something to get the modern take on it. But uh, all right. Well, this, uh, those are, I guess, what we're diverting ourselves with now. And now we'll talk with Jen Hatmaker. Well, Sarah and I are delighted to welcome Jen Hatmaker to the program. So, Jen, can you go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, and thank you for having me on today. I'm so happy to talk to another person. <laughs> I 
I'm not related to. We are so, recording yay. this during a COVID-19 lockdown. So uh, we may run, yes. hopefully when we are not in lockdown, when Jen's book comes out, but <laughs> recording ahead, yes. <laughs> Real people. Yes, absolutely. Like, oh, there's a person's face on the screen. How nice. I live in Austin, Texas with my big family. I've got my husband, Brandon, and I have been married for 26 years and we have five kids. So we have two in, two in college, two in high school, and one in middle. So it's just a circus up in here every single day, of course. And, you know, we're getting a lot of togetherness right now. I'll tell you that. Togetherness is a, a double-edged sword, really. <laughs> I don't yes, know how else to refer yes. to it. Yeah. Yeah. And you've worn a lot of professional hats over the years. I was looking through the list of your various gigs. Um, There's probably not a huge overlap between people who have been both preachers and HTV (laughs) television personalities. So maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, your, your evolution. I'm such an interesting category. Every time I release a new book, my publishing team um, faces the same conundrum, which is we don't know where this book belongs in a bookstore. Like I'm not a tidy, I don't have tidy categories at all, but yeah, I've, I've uh, been in ministry, my husband as well. We started a church here in Austin and then weirdly we had an eight episode series on HGTV. We renovated a hundred year old farmhouse. Um, but primarily the overlap is that I generally just, I serve women and I serve them in a lot of capacities. So sometimes that looks like books. Um, sometimes it looks like podcast. Sometimes it just looks like entertainment. Cause I mean, my gosh, we've just got to be able to laugh. Sometimes it looks like spiritual leadership. And I just decided a few years ago that I didn't have to pick, that I didn't have to pick between being funny and being sober-minded, that I didn't have to pick between being entertaining and being instructive. And so I just do it all. And uh, and people just have figured it out at this point, like, oh, you, we get a little whiplash with Jen, and that's just okay. Yeah. And some interesting whiplash in terms of the communities you're part of. Um, and I think one of the things you address in the beginning of your new book, The Fierce, Free, and Full of Fire, which we're talking about today, is that you are both deeply embedded in the evangelical Christian community. You're also in the progressive activist community. And, and yeah. anyone who follows politics knows that the overlap between these two is somewhat limited as well. Uh, very, very yeah. tiny. So we're, yeah. we're seeing each other. Jen and I can yeah. see each other. She's making a very small, <laughs> small yes. thing with her fingers. But yeah. How, now, how does, how does that feel? I mean, is it sort of perpetually that, you know, feeling a little bit strange in both circles? Yeah. Yeah. You nailed it. And I would say, you know, just to be fair, to identify probably correctly, I, I'm not really deeply embedded in the evangelical world anymore. That was a, a world that that's kind of where I built my career, but there has, I've sort of been on a divergent path in the last, I'm going to say 10 years when I had, I was unable to reconcile the conflict and tension I felt inside that circle. However, you know, if I'm not necessarily connected to that branch of the tree, I still have this like deeply spiritual side that includes spiritual leadership and pastoral leadership. And then to your point, also, I am an activist. My husband and I run a foundation. We we globally fund initiatives all around the world with our community. I'm 
an ally for the LGBTQ community. I'm an ally for people of color and I'm a, I'm a supporter of Black Lives Matter. And so I'm just kind of, I run the gamut here. And I just had to decide, and this is kind of the center point of Fierce, the book we're talking about, which is just that if I have to keep shape-shifting to please the intended audience, which for me changes a lot because I, I run in a lot of lanes, then I am going to 100% disintegrate. So instead of trying to keep the peace in whatever room I'm in, I'm going to just have to be myself. I'm going to have to figure out deeply who I am, what I care about, um, what matters to me, how I am created to sort of thrive and lead and be that person no matter where I'm at. And that to me has been the path to freedom. Yeah. And so in her book, Jen is sharing some of her journey on this and also, you know, advice on why we should all try to be our authentic selves and why the world needs our authentic selves. And, you know, so this is this big idea. Then one of the things you start talking about at the beginning of the book is personality tests. Um, (laughs) So why, how, how do personality tests help us in our, our quest to be authentically ourselves? Yeah. I have led women for a couple of decades now and I'm 45. And so what I'm noticing is that a lot of women, even my age, even older, frankly, are saying, hell, I don't even know who I am. Like, you're asking me to be myself, to be the the core center of who I am. And I don't know who that is. Like, you know, I have spent all these years um, just tending the flock and making sure everybody else was thriving. And so we start out at the beginning of the book, like, well, let's just start with who you are. Not necessarily what you do, not necessarily what you care about or what you believe in, or we'll get to that. But let's start with just who you are, how you were formed, how you flourish on this earth. And so we kind of start there, like deeply going into personality spaces. Now, personality inventories are imperfect, a hundred percent. You know, these are these are guides, you know, they're not templates. And so, however, I just have discovered in my life, they've been a real useful tool for me. When I just kept noticing that something on the outside was not matching something on the inside, that I would have these either feelings or a tension point or whatever, an emotion that I was carrying on the inside, but that didn't have permission to live on the outside. So anyway, personality inventories helped me. Are you familiar at all with the Enneagram? I am. I don't know for sure which one I am, Um, (laughs) but uh, you, you found one that totally seemed to explain you, right? It was weird. It's, it was, it read me my mail. It's called the Enneagram, E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. And again, none of these are perfect, but that particular tool really unlocked some doors for me. Um, not just in just decoding who I really am and how to sort of structure my life in a way that I'm going to flourish, but also how to be married to this person I'm married to. And I learned what his number was and how those two numbers connect and my kids and my community. So, so I, I hope that Fierce takes women out of the starting blocks right there, that they can say, let's, before we start adding in all these people that are in our lives and our work and our passions and our convictions, let's begin right at the core of who we are and start there. Yes, let's start there. Now for podcast listeners, we're going to pause right here to take a quick ad break.
We're back with Jen Hatmaker, who is talking about her new book, Fierce, Free, and Full of Fire. We've just been talking personalities. I know you discovered something interesting, which I had as well. I, you know, I didn't know that I could be an introvert because oh. I, you know, talk to people. Like I don't hide You're in a right. corner. <laughs> I talk to people for a living. And so yet it explained to me why every time I was forced to like stand in a row and like meet 50 people at a time, I wanted to go hide in the bathroom. It sounds like you may have had totally. a similar, similar experience. A hundred percent the same. I included that in that same chapter because a few years ago, I read the book Quiet by Susan Cain. Have you read it? I have. Great I book. mean, it rocked me to my core because I'm like, you have a very public life. So I, and I love people. I, I just had a, I had the, I had a poor definition of what it meant to be an introvert, which I thought it meant very reclusive and very perhaps shy and not necessarily wanting to have a lot of meaningful conversations. And of course, that's not what it means at all. So when I read Susan's book, the power of an introvert in a world that can't stop talking. I felt like I was looking at a mirror. I'd never, nobody had ever told me that some of my, the limits on my capacity had to do with introversion. I just felt like I was a bad person. I thought, well, if I'm just not willing to be completely available, right, at all times, that's my work. You know, I'm a leader. I'm, a, I'm even a spiritual leader. And that adds another layer onto the shoulds of our life. So then that learned discovering that I'm pretty much a textbook introvert, it freed me up in so many ways. It gave me a little bit, honestly, permission to structure my work life a little bit differently so that I was building in areas where I could recharge and refuel in quiet, sort of alone. And it served me so well. But again, I think this is why it matters that we know who we are. This work, this sort of digging out the mining of our personality, it's good work. It means something. It's not just for like obsessive self-reflection. You know, uh, we've had enough of that, but rather I think it serves us and really deeply informs what we do and how we do it, how we love, how we connect with people. Um, and so, yeah, introvert here, big time. So this is why my family's laughing at me right now as we are sort of in isolation. Um, and we'll see where we're at when this comes out, but they're like, mom, this is your best life. I'm like, yes. well, to <laughs> some degree, before I just school. like to be home. <laughs> totally. I've been training for this my whole life. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And then part of, you know, we get to know ourselves and, and then part of feeling more free in the world is breaking free of some of the limitations that we may yeah. put on ourselves. And you talk about how women in particular maybe try to take up less space, partly because of concerns about body image, for instance, totally. that, you know, this is one of the ways we, we limit ourselves that we are, you know, obsessed about that as opposed to obsessed about, you know, broader things we might change in the world. And you've, ha you've had quite a journey in terms of your own body image. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit with us, because I know a, not, a lot of our listeners are, are struggling with the same thing. It's interesting. I've got uh, my launch team who's putting this book out has been reading it now for a couple of weeks. And so I've got, you know, 2000 people, 2000 advanced readers right now. And that chapter is hitting hard the the body chapter for women because it's just ubiquitous we it, we are just not alone in this sense of self 
loathing and body shaming and just a general sense of unhappiness um, with what we look like and what others think of what we look like. And I spent quite a bit of time really unpacking that for the reader because this is the intended result of an industry hell bent on making sure we hate ourselves so that we continue to pump billions of dollars into all these quick fixes. And, and it's interesting too, when you take a, like a longer view of body image, because historically we, we, you and I both know what, what pretty is right now. You know, there's a look that's out there. We all know what it is, but that's just right now. And that's also just right here. You know, pretty has, the idea of pretty has meandered through enormous fluctuations throughout history. And sometimes it's round and squishy and soft. Sometimes it's like lean and hard and androgynous and uh, whatever it is right now. And so it's a moving target. It's not fair. The game is rigged. This is a rigged system. And so I have learned a lot from practitioners who are very gently teaching us a different way to relate to our bodies and how to learn embodiment and how to be kind to our bodies. One of my favorite teachers is Dr. Hillary McBride, and I quote her liberally in that chapter. And she suggests, and I love this, this has fundamentally changed something inside of me, but you know, she says, we are terrible to our bodies, both physically and emotionally, we're mean. And so she says, our body is not an it. It's not an it. It's not this separate, unfortunate container just walking us around on this earth. She suggests calling our body a her or a she, that she is just as much a part of who we are as our minds, as our hearts, as our convictions. And so I have taken to thinking of my body as a she and speaking to her as such. Like she did a great job today. And she walked me through a lot of hard things today and kept me calm and kept me, kept me sound and grounded. And so this kind of gentle talking to our bodies in a way that appreciates all she's done for us every single day, getting us through another day. It's really changing my mind about how I see myself. Yeah. Now I, I love that too. And I'm trying to think about my body as she and, and mm-hmm. thank her for, for sort of the amazing things she's, yes. uh, she's done. Another, another part that um, really spoke to me in, in your book, you talk about being mindful of your yeses. One of my five favorite ideas for that you talk about, now you have five kids. I also have five kids, oh, um, but yes. mine are a little, mine are a little younger than yours. So we haven't gotten to this point yet, but when oh, your yeah. kids turn 13, you take oh, yeah. them on a trip where you get to say yes yeah. a lot. Yeah. Um, so so what, what does that look like? What are these yes trips? I love telling that story embedded in that chapter of how to correctly choose our yeses and our noes because women are a mess about this. We are handing out way more yeses than we are interested in actually handing out. It's making us angry and it's, we're just sort of unraveling at the seams. And so I start that chapter out by telling this great story, which when our oldest son was approaching 13, how old are your kids? 12, 10, 8, 5, and a baby. Okay. Okay. So right where you are, right where we like are. literally, <laughs> yes. we were like, oh wow, we're in the weeds like every day. And so we're going to have to figure out how to do something special with each kid. Just one on, you know, one on one time is hard to come by in a big family. And so uh, our oldest kid was approaching 13 and we decided that when every kid turns 13, one parent, 
like that gender parent. So Brandon's taking the boys and I took the girls is going to take that kid on a surprise trip and they will not know where, and they will not know when, and they won't know anything about it. We will just yank them out of their beds and put them in the car and drive them to the airport. And we take about a three or a four day trip with them. And we call them yes trips because we just decided that they were going to be sort of extravagant and permissive and not necessarily extravagant in terms of being expensive. Just like, mom, can we order room service at 11 p.m.? Yes. Can I have French fries for dinner? Yes. Can I have Coke for breakfast? Yes. Like if it is within the realm of possibility and it wasn't dangerous, we're like, yes, we say yes. Um, my last, my last trip was last year, my last 13 year old. And she said, mom, I want to get, we were in New York city. And she said, I want to get my eyebrows threaded. I'm like, let's go. So I'm like, this is a yes trip. And I told her, this is a hundred percent yes, but you don't get to say no. You don't get to feel the first thread and go, oh, I changed my mind. <laughs> I'm done. One thread. So and it's I'm just out. this beautiful family tradition. And so every kid knew, knew it was coming. They never knew when. So like two weeks leading up to their 13th birthday, they are on pins and needles. And just one of my favorite memories of being a mom. That, that sounds wonderful. I mean, those one-on-one trips or even one-on-one like afternoons, if that's all you yeah, can Yeah, totally. Are, are, are great. You know, being able to say yes to these things is wonderful. And, and part of that is then saying no to the that's things right. that we don't care about. And so what's, what's your advice for, for getting better at, at that for, for people who tend to say yes to things that they don't uh, actually wish I to? I packed that. I absolutely packed that chapter with resources and ideas because the truth is, I think women are overextended because we're incredibly capable. So people are just going to continue to ask us to do things because they know we can, and they know we can pull it off, and they know we can accomplish it. And so this, we cannot count on our environments to slow their role. This is going to be our work, right? We're the only ones who are going to be able to hold any sort of boundary on our time and energy sort of exertion. And so I have a couple of rules that I put in there that have really served me well that I learned from other teachers. One is that Greg McCowan wrote a book called Essentialism. And he said, this is fantastic. He said, okay, as you are considering all your options, and I say we have a thousand options for every a hundred spots, right? Get really, really laser focused on what is my goal? What do I want here? What am I good at? What do I really, really want to say yes to? And, and how do I want to get there? And what do I want to do? And then with that goal in mind, like very, very specifically, evaluate every incoming request by either rating it, by rating it from zero to 100 based on how much does this opportunity meet my goals? And if it's a 90 or above, you say yes. And that's a good yes. That's an easy yes. But if it is an 89 or lower, you change its score to zero and you cancel it out. And so he says, in this way, you are sort of reserving your energy and your time for your highest level of contribution. And you are saying yes to the very, very best opportunities. I love this because I typically say yes to everything in the 80s because it <laughs> It's close. It's close. You know, it's close. It's and, <laughs> and, I, or, and I feel a sense of obligation somewhere in the 80s or like I should do this or even I should want to do this. And so that 90% rule has deeply, deeply affected me to be able to say, this is not my highest point of contribution. I'm going to say no. And the good news is like my, my 78 is somebody else's 95. Let them have it. Like let them have it. The short version of this 
this is the shorthand bit that I tell my, my people all the time is this, when you are considering an opportunity, if it is not a hell yes, then it's a no. Yep. And so that's the short version of that long story where if it's not a hell, if it's like a kind of yes, or like a medium yes, or I guess I ought to yes, it's a no. So let's talk about honesty. Um, Cause you advocate radical honesty in yes. this book the bit different people in our lives and, and getting clear with what we want, what our desires are. That sounds scary. Yeah. Is it scary? I mean, how do we, how do we get past that? That if we're, we're honest, we'll, we'll learn things we don't want to know or, well, you know, we, we will upset people. I mean, this is a hundred percent true. And so I want to, I want to honor the fact that it is indeed scary to live that way. And we have been conditioned early on that it is essentially up to the women in the room to make sure that everybody else is comfortable, right? And to adjust the dial to the tone of the room to avoid interruption or challenge or tension or disagreement. And so, you know, we learned early on that we were expected to maintain the correct temperature in the room that somebody else already set. But the obvious downside of that is that we have to silence our own voices, our own convictions, our own gifts, our own influence. And we have a right to those things. We have a right to our own agency and our own authority and our own ideas. And any tension that those create, that's an important challenge to the status quo, which of course, by the way, still favors the same categories of people um, all the time. And so I, I, I think we have to challenge this instinct but I want to acknowledge the fear because it's true. There is a cost to telling the truth in all facets of our lives. It is disruptive when women finally tell the truth about who they are, about what they need or want, about what they believe. That sends shockwaves along the little worlds we have helped create. It's true. But I, I suspect that women who are living in that place of sort of silence and submission probably feel how I felt to some degree for years, which was hamstrung and fraudulent. And even, and I mean this gently, but even cowardly. And I thought, this is not how I want to live. This is not the mark I want to leave on this earth. And so I just came to the point where I thought, I'm supposedly keeping the peace, but I don't have any peace. And also, I'm keeping the peace, but I am robbing some other communities of peace because I am unwilling to come alongside of them like I feel convicted to. And so, yes, there is a cost built into telling the truth, um, but I will walk every reader through it. I, I, I put so many tools and resources in the hands of every reader, like scripts, actual language and conversations that I've had and that I can model and walk readers through the process of integration and of telling the truth and of finally showing up and then ultimately being free and true and real. And I am telling you, the work is worth it. It is worth the cost. It is worth the tension because the end game is such liberation and honesty. Like I just cannot even put a price tag on living that that way. Yeah. And, and one of the other things that is worth doing the work that you talk about is finding your people, um, that they help make this journey toward radical honesty of knowing who we are, knowing what we want in the world, um, just more pleasant in, in general, yeah. more, more fun. And, you know, a lot of listeners in this podcast are very busy with work, with family. Totally. 
how do we go about finding our people and, and nurturing those relationships? Yeah, this is, um, this is a point of loneliness, honestly, and sadness that feels really common to the community of women. Um, right now. It's interesting because we're expected to do right now what generations before us really weren't, which is be like the, the Pinterest-worthy mom and have this thriving, beautiful career that is meaningful and impacting the world and tending to beautiful like homes. And we're kind of expected to do everything. And at the same time, we're mostly distanced and disconnected from our extended families, um, from our parents and our siblings. Um, we don't live necessarily where we grew up or where our families are. Neighbors in general are less connected. And so we're expected to do more with less connection. And so it's no wonder that women are drowning in loneliness and they're not alone. They really, really aren't. And so I think the first thing I want to say to women is you're not doing anything wrong. You are just expected to do so much right now that we used to kind of have a village around and now we don't. And so one of the writers that I reference in there calls it, we're, we have villageless lives. And so I just really challenge the notion that really close and meaningful relationships are secondary or optional. Um, there's a lot of data that tells us that connected, meaningful relationships are positively more than any other, more than any other factor, literally on earth, the key to either living a life of like meaning and flourishing or living a life of sort of loneliness and sorrow. Like this is, if this is the one place we spend our energy, it's the right place. And so uh, I, I put a lot of op options in front of people. This is how to find people. And it, Here's the thing. I think what women are going to have to, the hurdle they're going to have to jump is the risk. And women have been burned before, or they're afraid, or they're new somewhere, or they're in transition in some way. And so it feels risky to be vulnerable with somebody to, to sort of take a little step out onto a relational ledge to see if it'll hold. Um, but there's no other way. <laughs> there's just no other way. There's not a shortcut. There's not an easy guaranteed route around. We're just going to have to decide if being lonely is worth being safe or if the, if the risk factor, the vulnerability is worth it. And I contend that it is. And so I don't think we have to build communities where we have 25 best friends in the world. You know, one is enough to absolutely change the game. One that you can count on. And so I have such love in my heart and such empathy for women who feel lonely. And I hope that the tools from Fierce will really encourage them to step out there, to get out there. One thing that I say inside the book is instead of waiting for community, provide it and you'll end up with it anyway. And so we can be the first one to raise our hand and say, I'll go first. Easier said than done, but good advice. Exactly right. <laughs> so Jen, we always end our interviews with a love of the week, which is something cool that is in our world right now. Um, I can go first, so you can have a, a minute to think. But um, what I am loving right now are is the magnolia tree in my front yard oh. that is blossoming. And I am currently only seeing my magnolia tree because we are not leaving the house. That's right. Um, but if there's going to be a time where I can't leave the house, 
now is a pretty good time uh, with, with seeing beautiful blossoms of spring. So how about you? Oh, for that's you right great. Now? That's so great. Um, I probably have two, and this is obviously going to also be quarantine related because that's just the life you and I are living right now. Maybe this, I hope this is obsolete by the time this comes out, but (laughs) we have just by way of absolute necessity rediscovered the joy of a really hard puzzle. (laughs) And so (laughs) I, thousand pieces good. I mean, (laughs) I sat with a couple of my kids a couple of days ago for three hours and I mean, focused on the puzzle. And it was so fun to kind of be with them and watch them do that. And then I am also back to your earlier question. I'm on Zoom right now with my friends and we are doing happy hours at five o'clock on our Zoom screens. And it just feels to me, it's not just seeing my friends, which is so meaningful because all I've seen are these people that live here, but it reminds me that human beings will do what it takes to connect with one another, to encourage one another, that we will get creative, that we will get innovative, that everything that has ever mattered still matters and we'll find a way to it. I mean, it may look different than what we've been used to, but I have just been so encouraged watching humans be beautiful right now and finding a way to connect and to love each other and to make each other laugh and to bring each other joy. And so I suspect that we are gonna emerge from this strange, unprecedented season of social isolation really stronger and that we will be really proud of the way we sort of laid down our differences and our arguments and found a way to come together. It's been a real marvel to watch and I, I'm proud to be a part of it. Well, let's hope. Let's hope that's the outcome of all this. Absolutely. <laughs> all right. Well, this has been Jen Hatmaker, who is the author of the new book, Fierce, Free, and Full of Fire, which I know our listeners will love. So please pick up a copy of that. Thanks for having me on. Well, that was great. And now we have a listener question who writes in, I have a topic that may seem silly, but I promise it's a genuine concern for me. There, no silly questions. This is all good. Listeners, you can write in with whatever you want. Sorry, that was Laura's little aside there. All right. She writes in to Sarah, I'd love to hear how you and Laura manage your friendship, specifically keeping up with your connections to your friends. Here's a bit of background to give some more color to my question. I'm a full-time working mom to a 15-month-old, and I'm expecting baby number two. So she's been in the pregnant newborn baby phase for a while and will be for a while. So her problem is twofold. One, either her friends are in different stages of life. So for instance, they have older kids um, and thus have more freedom or maybe don't have kids. Um, And so it's hard to coordinate schedules. Or second, she's just not keeping up with the regular stay in touch communication. For instance, she'll have friends who will text her at all times during the day, but then her work life is such that she can't respond to texts. Um, very quickly. And then she's like, okay, well, I'll respond at the end of the day, but then it gets away from her. And two, three, four days later, the text is still sitting there. So I feel like my friendships are suffering because of this. She says, how can I be better? Should I block out time each night to just respond to texts? Do you have any hacks? And finally, can you please reassure me that this is just a phase of life? And when my kids get older, I will have a social life again. Yeah, I think this is a great question because it's relevant now during these times when our socializing is a little bit more virtual and it will be relevant later because I'm sure people are going to be enjoying these episodes for years to come, right? (laughs) Okay, so I have a few thoughts. First of all, you know, you mentioned that the newborn and baby phase like lasts a while, but actually, I guess having come out through the other side, Laura's still in it, so maybe she doesn't remember this part, but it actually... It is kind of fast. Like, you know, before you know it, before once a year is up, that newborn is becoming a one-year-old. And 
as time goes, um, your friendships, the ones that really last, they're going to weather, you know, a year or even two years of things being crazy. Like the ones that don't matter, they might not. And then who cares? But the ones that really do matter, um, like I think of my close college friends or even a couple of people I've been in touch with since high school, it doesn't matter. And if a year or two goes by because one of us had some kids that are young and we have less bandwidth, then that's fine and we can catch up later. So I would just remember that even though it feels like forever now, there's always opportunity to catch up on those real friendships later on. The second thing I have to say is I think that, you know, even if it's not that frequent, making intentional time together, whether that's a virtual Zoom call that you're doing during this COVID period, you know, a lot of people are doing that with groups of old friends that actually hadn't been together in person for a while. Or like with my group of college friends, only about half of us have kids, but at the same time, we made it a priority to get together in person and we try to do it once a year. Um, Does it mean that we're not, you know, sharing every little thing every day? Sure, we, we don't. I mean, we're all in different locations and in different phases of life. But when we do get together, we still feel a real closeness. And then when big things happen, like the coronavirus, we sort of are still familiar enough in each other's lives that we can have an impromptu Zoom happy hour and it still feels completely meaningful and we feel like we haven't missed anything. So I would just, you know, don't don't feel like just because there isn't a high frequency that your friendships are lost. And then finally, uh, you know, the the once a day responding to texts, I think that actually is kind of a a nice idea. I myself do not do a good job batching. My husband will attest he likes to pantomime knocking my phone out of my hand sometimes because I'm not very disciplined and I will get sucked back into a group chat rapidly when I probably would be better off doing more batching. But if batching works to you for you and you can do it, consider that like a nice little wind down perhaps at the end of the day or if you're pumping, save it for a pump session or, you know, fit it in where, where it seems like it fits. What do you think? Yeah, I text a lot of people while uh, pumping or nursing. <laughs> that seems to be a time that, I mean, otherwise, I'm, I mean, I'm on my phone anyway. It's hard to hold a book. Um, and so if I'm reading, I'm reading on my phone. And so it's easy to have conversations as well. You know, you also might consider if you could nudge some of your closest friends into different forms of communication. So if texting is easier for them than for you, maybe you could ask if you could do slightly different things. I mean, if you could like FaceTime them for five minutes in the evening to catch up on everything as opposed to the texts back and forth through the day. Um, Maybe that would work for you or, you know, call while you're walking to the train or whatever it is that you can, you can work out a way to communicate with them in a slightly different way if the text just doesn't, doesn't work. But yeah, I, I would second that point that it is a phase, like you will discover more time for hanging out with friends as your kids get older and which is great. I mean, there's there's a dip. Um, people have studied sort of friendships through life that there is a dip when people have young kids and are very busy with work and with family matters. And then as time opens up, it's something that you can rediscover. And so you just kind of have to keep those friendships going, maybe not on full blast during that time, but if you can keep just a little bit going, then they will be able to go back up once everyone's got a little bit more bandwidth. All right. Well, this has been Best of Both Worlds. We've been talking with Jen Hatmaker about her book, Fierce, Free, and Full of Fire. (laughs) Get it all out. All the Fs. And we'll be back next week with more on making work and life fit together. Thanks for listening. You can find me, Sarah, at theshoebox.com or at the underscore shoebox on Instagram. And you can find me, Laura, at lauravandercam.com. This has been the Best of Both Worlds podcast. 
Please join us next time for more on making work and life work together. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.